are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik. I'm very pleased that you could join me today for our Thursday afternoon question and answer time. Today, I'm doing what I like to do on a Thursday afternoon. I get together with our YouTube, Facebook, and TWR audience and get together and talk to them about the Bible and any questions that they may have about the Christian life. That's something I really enjoy doing, and um, well, I hope that you enjoy it too, whether you're watching us live or whether you're watching us later on uh, on either YouTube or Facebook. Uh, we enjoy it when we can get together with you for these times. Now, the normal way that we do it, and again, I say normal. Today, I'm back at my home. Last week, I was traveling. I was in New York City, as a matter of fact. Uh, today, back at my home on the west coast of California, we have a time where I deal with a lead question first, and then we open it up to whatever questions you all have on the comments or side chat or whatever you want to call it. We have those comments sent to a moderator named Devin. Hi, Devin. Glad you're with us today. And Devin then takes those comments and he, uh, or those questions, I should say, and he picks out the ones that he think would have the most relevance to a broadest audience and he forwards those to me, and then we deal with the questions that come in. So that's how we're going to do it here this afternoon. And um, I'm glad wherever you are in the world that you could join us. Very pleased that we have an international audience, and it's wonderful to connect with them. Today's lead question comes to us from Linda. Linda asks this question, When were Satan and his angels cast out of heaven? And so that's what we want to ask. When was Satan cast from heaven? And Linda, I think that's a very interesting question, uh, and the most direct answer I can give you, and this is from my understanding of the Bible again, some of these things are matters of uh, at least a little bit of controversy, I don't know, fact, it's a big dividing point, but I'll just say different Christians from different traditions have had some different opinions on these things, but you're asking me, so I'm going to give you my answer. The most direct answer I can give to the question, when was Satan cast from heaven, would be not yet. I don't think Satan is cast from heaven yet, and I'll explain why in just a moment, but I think that there's a lot of explanation that's in order about this. The most direct reference to Satan being cast out of heaven comes from Revelation chapter 12, uh, verses 7 through 10, and I'm just going to read you verses 7 and 8 to start off with. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 and 8 read this. Um, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So again, we understand that this is speaking in imagery, uh, but it's imagery that represent real things. There is a real Michael, an archangel. There are real angels. There is a real Satan represented here by a dragon and his angels, which we would regard as demonic spirits. There's some discussion and maybe even controversy about that, but it talks about the dragon or the devil and his angels. And when they did not prevail in this battle against Michael and his angels, 
there was not a place found for them in heaven any longer. This shows us that up until the events that are described in Revelation chapter 12 happen, Satan does have access to heaven where he accuses God's people before the throne. Uh, As is seen in the book of Job, it's very plain in the first uh, several chapters of Job, where it speaks about Satan's access to heaven, as well as a few other Old Testament passages. But look now with me at Revelation chapter uh, 12, verse 10, just a couple verses later. Revelation 12, 10 says this, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. What we see here in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 is the idea that uh, Satan has a position of being the accuser of God's people and he's busy at that all the time. And so I would say right now that the events of Revelation chapter 12 um, have not happened yet. Now, I know that there's some objections to that. I'll get to that in a moment. But let me first deal with the question that it troubles some people to think that Satan has access to heaven because they've been taught that God can allow nothing unholy in his presence. Now, I think that's a mistake in teaching. I think that it's clear that God can allow unholy things in his presence uh, simply because we're told several times in the scriptures that Satan is uh, appearing before God in heaven. So the Bible gives us two ideas about the location of Satan. As a matter of fact, I could say it gives us three ideas. The first one is that it pictures Satan being on earth. I'll give you an example of that. Luke chapter 4 speaks of the devil, Satan, on earth, tempting Jesus Christ in the wilderness. That's Satan on earth. It also describes Satan as the prince of the power of the air in passages such as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. In other words, um, he, he, he dwells in the air, in the atmosphere, so to speak. But it also says that Satan has access to heaven, as in Job chapter 1 and other places, where he accuses God's people before the throne, as described there in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. So I would say this, that in some way, Satan has access to both heaven and earth. Uh, Passages such as Job chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 12, verse 10 shows that he has access to heaven, and passages such as the temptation of Jesus in Luke 4, and I'll throw another one at you, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, show us that he has access to the earth. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, here, the word picture, again, it's using some symbolism, picturing Satan as a roaring lion, but the figure of Satan is real. His representation as a roaring lion is metaphorical or symbolic. And it speaks to us about he walks about. He's present on the earth. Now, there is a passage that I suppose some people might emphasize to a great deal that 
would be something of a problem passage to the scenario that I just de- uh, described to you. And that's what Jesus said in Luke chapter uh, 10, verse 18. Luke 10, 18, Jesus says this. And he said to them, meaning Jesus, of course, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Okay, now I I want you to consider for a moment. Jesus said that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he did this on the occasion of hearing of the success of his commissioned disciples returning to him, especially the authority that they had over demonic spirits. So that caused Jesus to speak of the fall of Satan when he fell as quickly and as dramatically as lightning from heaven. And here's what I would suggest to you, that the Bible actually mentions four falls of Satan. Now, I can't remember exactly where I got this list from. I think it was probably from Donald Gray Barnhouse in his commentary on the book of Revelation. But I believe that the Bible mentions four falls of Satan. Let's go through these one by one. First of all, you have the fall from glorified to profane. That's described in Ezekiel chapter 28. Then the second fall is the fall from having access to heaven to being restricted onto the earth. That's the one described in Revelation chapter 12. The third fall of Satan is from the earth to bondage in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. That's described in Revelation chapter 20. And then the final is the fall from the pit to the lake of fire. That's again in Revelation chapter 20. Now, again, I I believe that this describes for us four different falls of Satan. And I believe that in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus spoke of Satan's first fall, the fall from glorified to profane. And, And when it says he fell like lightning from heaven, that doesn't mean that heaven, that, excuse me, that Satan fell from heaven, but that his fall was as dramatic and as sudden as a bolt of lightning from heaven. Again, I just go back to the several passages which seem to indicate that Satan still has access to heaven, yet in Luke chapter 10, the success of the disciples against demonic spirits was confirmation that Satan had fallen from his place of authority and powerful to an inferior place. And Satan's fall was God's immediate judgment upon him as a rebellious spirit, though it was not his complete judgment, nor his final judgment, we would say very much so that that still awaits. So, Uh, Here we see the four different falls of Satan, and I believe it's something very powerful, very interesting for us to understand, that Satan still apparently, in answer to Linda's question, has access between heaven and earth, because the Bible describes his presence or his working in both places, in heaven as the accuser of the brethren, on earth as, uh, well, the one who... uh, torments believers, tempts believers, tempts the world, uh, tries to advance his anti-God program, if you will, across the earth. And I think that that gives us an overview there of who Satan is and what he is doing. So that's the simple idea 
Linda, thank you so much for your question. And now I'm going to turn my attention to the questions that are coming in through our response to you, our live viewers. Uh, number one, uh, Mikotalia. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Please forgive me if I'm not pronouncing your name correctly. Mikotalia from YouTube says, why didn't God say it was good the second day of creation? It was the only day when he did not say it was good. Well, Mikatalia, I, I just got to say, I, I don't think I have an answer for that. I really don't know. Uh, maybe if I dug into it deeper, I could give you some kind of substantial answer. Uh, but really, I, I don't know why. Sometimes it's possible for us to read too much into something like that. But yet, if God, through the first six days of creation, pronounces it good every day with the exception of the first day, I think there is something there to pay attention to. But as for a specific reason, I don't believe I could tell you. Uh, so again, that's just something that doesn't come to my mind immediately. But thank you for that question. Uh, maybe I'll dig into it more and, uh, and be able to address it as a lead question as a later time. Teresa asked this question on Facebook. What does it mean in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, to pray in the Spirit? I was told that this is the speaking in tongues, yet the Spirit is given to his people in various ways, like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, so here is Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, where it says, praying always, this is that famous passage on spiritual warfare, and here the Apostle Paul is guiding or counseling believers on really how to enter the warfare, it's through prayer. Uh, again, Ephesians 6.18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Well, Teresa, I would just simply define it this. To pray in the Spirit is simply to pray uh, under the influence of the Holy Spirit and in step with the Holy Spirit. It's to pray, if I could use kind of a cliche, but sometimes these cliches are helpful. It's to pray being led by God's Spirit. And I think that's simply what it means to pray in the Spirit. Now, can prayer in the Spirit include communicating God or praying with the gift of tongues? I believe it certainly can. Now, I know this may be controversial for some of our viewers or listeners uh, because there is not unanimous agreement among Christians today or throughout church history regarding the gift of tongues and its validity for today. Uh, for a lot of reasons that I won't go into right now, I, I do believe that this is a gift that God uh, makes available or gives to his people today. So I certainly believe that praying in the Spirit includes the gift of tongues, but by no means should it be restricted to that. I believe that any time that we pray in sync with the Spirit, in step with the Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit would want us to pray, that we are indeed praying in the Holy Spirit. We're praying in the Spirit. So I would just simply say, Teresa, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? Well, it would include the idea of praying with the gift of tongues, but it should not be limited to that idea of praying with the gift of tongues. It's really praying any time that we are led by and in sync with the Holy Spirit. 
Here's a question that comes from our TWR360 audience. Hey, God bless our TWR360 audience. TWR is that great ministry, Trans World Radio, that's doing a remarkable work all over the world. And TWR360 is their online presence. For decades, they've been doing a remarkable work with shortwave radio. Now they have a substantial ministry online as well. And we're happy to partner with them. One of the reasons why we're happy to partner with TWR360 is because we really believe in reaching the world for Jesus Christ. Look, let's be very straightforward and honest about this. English is the most commonly used language in the whole world. More people speak English in the world than any other single language. It's not necessarily the native language of most people in the world, but it is certainly the most used. So um, my Bible resources are provided in English. I mean, that's my native language, and it's the one we're most interested in providing the resources in, that most people use my resources. But believe me, folks, English is not the only language in the world, and I believe that God wants good Bible resources to go out to people of all nations, of all languages. Therefore, we here at Enduring Word have a very active uh, program of translating my Bible commentary into other languages. We have a tremendous work of translating into Spanish and Arabic and Chinese and Farsi and Italian and Portuguese and German and uh, Farsi and many other languages. So I simply mention that to say I do like to ask our viewers, our listeners, if they can pray for this ongoing work. We believe that God's hand of blessing is upon it, and we believe it's because God's people pray. So without apology, and I just say this in reference because we brought up uh, a question from Jonathan from our TWR360 audience, uh, we have a worldwide interest in what God is doing all over the world. We love what God is doing around the globe, and we want to provide good Bible resources for many, many people around the world outside of those who can speak or read English. Okay, with that, here's Jonathan's question from our TWR360 audience. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, it says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Okay, now here's Jonathan's question. That was the verse, 1 John 4, 18. Jonathan's question is this. Please explain being made perfect in love. I sometimes have flare-ups of fear and anxiety, but through prayer and scripture regain my confidence. This verse convicts me during these moments of weakness. I don't want to be in this category of not being made perfect in love. How can I resolve this? Okay, Jonathan, tremendous question. Thank you for this question. I would say that our being made perfect in love is a way of describing what spiritual growth, growth in grace, uh, to use kind of a, a, a theological word, our sanctification is. We're growing in love. You see, since so love is so central to the Christian life, one could say that maturing, growing in the Christian life 
is maturing, growing in love. And when I say love, I mean true love. Now, I don't mean the falsely sentimental kind of love. Uh, you know, the love that is translated as just being nice or mere kindness. No, real love goes beyond that. This true love, to grow in love, is to grow in Jesus Christ. To grow in Jesus Christ is to grow in love. So, Jonathan, let me be, just be very straightforward with you. Uh, you will not be completely perfected in love until you are completely sanctified, until you are completely grown up into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's not going to be until you leave this life for the next. Until then, God wants your life and my life, <laughs> the life of all of us, to be growing in grace, growing in the love of God, growing in the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ. So, uh, really, that's how I would describe it for you there, Jonathan. It's this idea of growing in grace, growing in the love of God. And again, it's because um, love is such a central part of the Christian life, of the Christian experience. It's the basis of our own relationship with God, not the love we have for him, but the love that he has for us. It's the basis of our own relationship with God, and it is uh, really a wonderful measure of our Christian growth. Uh, another thing to say is when we read that phrase, um, love is perfect the ancient Greek word there, I believe, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but I, I, I believe that in that particular context, usually in the New Testament, where it has the idea of perfection, it's translating an ancient Greek word that can also just simply uh, be understood as maturity or full grown. If we want to emphasize uh, the, the idea, I should say, of absolute perfection can be overemphasized with that term has more to do with maturity and uh, growing up into maturity. Okay, great. Let me go to the next question. comes from our YouTube audience from Tara. And Tara asked this question. I watched your teaching on breaking promises. You mentioned that it might happen that we need to break a vow to God or man. Can you give an example? Do you mean remarriage because of repentance involves keeping vows? All right, Tara, I, I don't know exactly about that last aspect of the question, but let me think. You asked if I could give an example of breaking a vow to God or man. Tara, I would just express it like this. Some vows that we make are either ungodly or unwise. And if we make an ungodly or unwise vow, the key to that vow is not keeping it, it's repenting of it. I'll give you an example. You asked for one. In the book of Acts, good heavens, I can't remember which chapter, chapter 21, chapter 22, we're told of a group of 40 assassins that vowed before God that they would not eat or drink until they had murdered the apostle Paul. Now, these were men who made a vow. And they said, we're not going to eat or drink until we murder the Apostle Paul. Can I just say, that was an ungodly and an unwise vow. They should have, instead of saying, well, I made a vow, I have to keep it. They should have repented of such an ungodly, 
unwise vow. Now, I know that's an extreme example, but in a lesser way, in a lesser sense, it's possible for us to do the same thing today. Now, if you're asking about this in regard to remarriage because of repentance involves keeping vows, let me just say that, of course, marriage is a vow. It's a promise. And it's a serious vow. It's a serious promise. But it is not an absolute vow or promise. And if you want more information on this, I would really recommend you go to the video that's in my YouTube library titled, I think it's called uh, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, or just just search my YouTube channel uh, for the word marriage and you'll find it right away. Please listen to that video and I go through very carefully, I think, what God's word says in its entirety about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Um, So I, I believe that yes, the marital vow is a serious, important vow that God will hold us to account before, but it is not absolute in the sense that it can never be broken because God specifically told us there were at least two occasions upon which the marriage vow could be broken, and that is the permission in the case of the adultery of a spouse or the abandonment by a spouse. I mean, this is just simply in God's word. God gives permission to break the vow of marriage in those circumstances. So uh, we, we just need to take what the Bible says about this and take all of what the Bible says about this not just a few verses and sort of feeling like we can erase some other verses from the scriptures. We need to take the whole counsel of what God's word says about these things and put them together in that way. So I hope that makes sense to you there, Tara. Uh, There is such a thing as an unwise or an ungodly vow, and we should not be a part of such a thing. Okay, let me go now to the next question that comes to us over Facebook from Ari. And Ari has a great question. Are there books of the Bible that we should read more than others? Ari, I want to congratulate you because I don't know if I've ever been asked that question before. And when I think about it, that's a good question. Good on you, Ari, of our Facebook audience for such a great question. I'll repeat it again just so everybody gets it. Are there books of the Bible that we should read more than others? So since I have not even thought about this question before, let me give you an answer, so to speak, off the top of my head, just my immediate reaction. I would say yes, if you're going to read any books of the Bible more than others, read the Gospels more than others. Now look, I I am not trying to apply. I do not want to imply that the Gospels are more inspired by God than the other books of the Bible. God forbid. Friends, we believe what the Bible tells us, or at least I believe it, I hope you believe it, that all Scripture is given by inspiration by God and is profitable for the believer. We believe that. It's profitable for the unbeliever, too. It can lead them to believe. All scripture is inspired by God. And there's nothing that we have in the scriptures that seem to indicate to us that at all, that any section of our Bible is more inspired than the other. 
I mean, here I have a Bible in front of me here. And, you know, the Bible's a pretty big book. And we don't go around thinking, well, this part's more inspired than the other part. It just doesn't work that way. Yet, I would say, if you are going to read any part of the Bible more than other parts, there's just something wonderful about the Gospels. Again, that would be my only suggestion to you. I do think that it's good for us to we read widely in the Scriptures, to read through the Scriptures as we can, uh, but... Just to answer your question, are there books of the Bible that we should read more than others? I would recommend the Gospels. Now, Ari, let me tell you and anybody else who's listening or viewing right now, something else that I think is important. I, I recommend to people, if you want to do something serious in your reading and understanding of the Bible, try this. Read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation I'm not saying do it on a year plan or something like that. You can if you want to, but here's the essential thing. Get yourself a notebook, or maybe you'll take the notes on your phone in some way. I don't know. Get yourself a notebook and write a one-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. Limit it to one sentence, because that'll make you think about it. It'll make you analyze it. Read a one-sentence summary of every, read, write a one-sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. You go through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, doing that, and let me tell you, it will really deepen your understanding and your knowledge of the Bible. I've done that at least twice. Uh, To be honest, it's been many years since I have done that. But doing that somewhat early in my Christian life, uh, certainly early in my ministry years, I think that was of great benefit to me. Hope that helps you there, uh, Ari. Next question comes also from Facebook from Vanessa. Vanessa asks this question. I hear many Christians say that when someone tries to talk with dead people, they're talking with demons. When I read that Saul talked with Samuel and he was already dead, I get confused. How was it possible that he was already in another place? When people do it, are they really with demons or with spirits just as Saul? Wow, Vanessa, you are asking a great question. I got to say, um, I am so impressed by the caliber of questions that get asked by our viewing audience. Good on you for that. And again, Vanessa, I want to say that's a great question. Okay. Let me give you my understanding of the whole situation described. I believe it's in 1 Samuel chapter 30, where Saul seems to appear conjured by the um, witch of Endor, which is commonly called the, the medium or witch of Endor, by, did I say Saul was conjured? Samuel came forward. Uh, because Saul asked the witch of Endor to conjure up uh, Samuel. Vanessa, I believe in that situation that what you have there is a rare one-off. Now, I do believe, I understand there's people who disagree, but I do believe that it was, in fact, Samuel that visited Saul and the witch of Endor on that occasion. Why do I believe that? Well, first of all, because in 
1 Samuel chapter 30, the Bible text simply calls him Samuel. It doesn't say a pretended Samuel or a fake Samuel or a spiritual deception. It just says that Samuel appeared. Here's the second thing. I believe that it was real, that it was Samuel really appearing because the witch of Endor was terrified. She was shocked. I would say that normally this medium, this witch, trafficked in deception, trafficked in false, you know, apparitions and fakery and phonery, like most psychic things, but not all. There is a real demonic realm or real psychic metaphysical realm that sometimes uh, those practitioners are terrified to actually come in contact with. The medium was terrified when Samuel appeared. Here's the other thing. The uh, man, or the apparition, the one called Samuel in this account in 1 Samuel chapter 30, he only spoke the truth. He announced that judgment would come upon Saul the next day, and it did, in fact. And the final reason why I think it was Samuel, and maybe this isn't so much a reason, but it's an interesting observation about it. It made absolutely no difference. Samuel spoke a true word warning of judgment to Saul. It was an invitation for Saul to repent, and Saul completely ignored it. He went on to his fate consigned to it. There's nothing in the text of the account of 1 Samuel chapter 30 that tells me that this was anything other than a real appearance of Samuel. Now, how do I account for this? I don't account for it. I just say it was a rare, unique one-off. God specifically commissioned Samuel to return from the realm of the dead. I would say at that time he was in Hades, the the area of blessing and comfort in Hades. Uh, In Jesus's parable in the Gospel of Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 17, he calls it the bosom of Abraham, this place of warm embrace with the people of God. God sent Samuel from that place of blessing and comfort to speak a word of judgment to Saul and to tell Saul that he was going to be with him in the realm of the dead the very next day. Now, how is that possible? I just believe it was a one-off miracle. And um, I believe that this was something that God did in a very unique way. And that Saul, excuse me, that Samuel uh, was not with demonic spirits, um, but actually that God gave this unique experience, this unique warning to Saul in this way. So, Vanessa, I hope that explains it to you there, just kind of all what was going on. Um, I do believe today that if somebody tries to correspond with the dead, to talk with the dead, that they're going to get one of three responses. Number one, they will get nothing because the dead can't speak to them. Number two, they could get something from their own imagination. I believe that's possible, of course. Or number three, they could get a deceiving message from a demonic spirit. Uh, That's why we shouldn't seek after communication with the dead, not at all. So I would say there's one of three possibilities just if somebody wants to communicate and feels that someone from the realm of the dead is speaking to them. 
Um, number one, it would be uh, it could be they're hearing nothing. Number two, they could be hearing their own imagination. Number three, it could be um, a message, a communication to them from the realm of the demonic. God does not want us to seek after um, any kind of information or correspondence with those who have gone to the realm of the dead. What he did with Saul in 1 Samuel 30 was a unique one-off. Okay, let me go to the next question here from our YouTube audience from Andromeda. Asks, is there any reason why almost all the prophets lived at the same time? Well, Andromeda, I don't know if I... God emphasized the prophetic ministry during the days of the kingdom of Israel, probably because they were so far gone and needed to hear his word so greatly. But the Bible gives us a record of prophets among Old Testament Israel, if we want to use that phrasing, going back at least to Moses. Moses was a prophet, and he gave an enormous amount of God's word to the people of Israel. Now, the prophets that you're probably speaking of were actually over a span of a few hundred years, concentrated at different places. But I think that the writings of the prophets come to us in that period, especially because the people of God needed so much correction, so much instruction. And again, there's just an element to this as well of simply saying the divine will. Look, I know it doesn't answer your question, Andromeda, but to say, well, God wanted it that way. But in some respect, that really is the answer. We know that there were prophets before the classic prophets that we think of, you know, the classic prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, on and on. We know there were prophets before that. Um, Moses was a prophet. The book of Joshua, or Judges, I, for certain, mentions prophets. First and Second Samuel mentioned prophets. First and Second Kings mentioned prophets. But then again, we're getting into the time of the prophets then. But here's what I want to say. Let's take for an example a prophet that existed before the classical writing of the prophets. That's the prophet Nathan in the days of David. Well, why do we not have a book of the prophet Nathan? And, and look, I, I can't give you any fancy answer other than just to say, and I understand that this answer isn't necessarily satisfying, but I think it's true. God didn't want it that way. God didn't want there to be a book of the prophet Nathan. Whatever God spoke to and through Nathan the prophet was not for all of God's people at all times, except for the rare lines that are recorded in First and Second Samuel. So I hope that makes some sense to you. God spoke legitimate words through the prophets, I would say Old and New Testament, that he did not intend to be for all of his people in all times, but the words that are recorded 
in our Hebrew and Greek scriptures, those are. So, I, I don't know, it's, in some sense, I could see where it's not a tremendously satisfying answer to the question, but it's really the best that we have. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Gunnel. All right, Gunnel is uh, my mother-in-law. Hello, Nils and Gunnel. Jenare. Okay, Gunnel asks a question. Uh, behind you is a photo next to the world globe. Who is that man? Well, this is a picture uh, done in iconic style of Jesus. I hope you all can see it there. Now, the reason I have this is this was a gift to me from somebody, but uh, there's a few reasons why I like this particular iconographic depiction of Jesus. Uh, uh, iconography, I guess that's pronouncing the, the term right, is a style of depiction of Jesus or Bible characters or even saints of history in uh, Orthodox Christian um tradition. You know, there's certain rules for how they picture and state things. And there's two reasons why I like this. First of all, because it is a depiction of Jesus in a teaching pose. You can tell that it's Jesus in a teaching pose by the way that his hands are positioned. And of course, he's holding a book. But then also, I like it because it reminds me of the breadth of Christianity. That Christianity finds its expression not only in Western, uh, if you want to call it evangelical Christianity, such as I'm familiar with and is sort of the environment that I live in, uh, but also um, in different customs and traditions uh, across the globe, one of them being the Orthodox communions. So, uh, that's a great question. It's just a little painting or depiction of Jesus, and that's why I have it up there. Blessings to you and Nils. All right, uh, next question comes from our Facebook audience, from Mariel. Mariel asks a question. Do you believe that verses in the book of Enoch, which mention Judas, to be inspired? If it is, then why don't we believe that the rest of the book is inspired as well as though it narrates strange things? Okay, Mariel, that is a great question. And let me just say, we do know that the book of Jude, which is also known as the book of Judas, especially in some other languages, the book of Jude quotes the book of Enoch, which has led some people to say, well, doesn't that mean that the entire book of Enoch is inspired by the Holy Spirit and it should be included in our collection of the Hebrew scriptures? I don't think so. And let me explain to you why. Because by long canonical, if I can use that phrase, tradition, the book of Enoch was not accepted as holy scripture by the Jewish people and the Hebrew compilers of the Hebrew scriptures for centuries, for, for before the time of Christ. So in the way that we understand our Old Testament, our Hebrew scriptures, in our New Testament, our Greek scriptures have come to us. We, we just understand that it was never broadly recognized. Look, there, there's always a few outliers, but it was never broadly recognized that the book of Enoch belongs in the collection of the Hebrew scriptures. 
So we regard Jude's quoting of Enoch as we would Paul quoting the Greek poets or philosophers in the book of Acts. You you understand that, don't you? That um, we have in the book of Acts a record of Paul quoting Greek poets or philosophers. It does not mean for a moment that everything that those writers wrote was inspired scripture or even the single work that Paul quoted from, but those lines, those verses, those words that Paul quoted, in that context, God wanted that to be regarded as inspired scripture. So we do rely on the um, canonical wisdom of God expressed through his people when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures and the Greek scriptures. And the book of Enoch has always lied outside of that, broadly speaking. Again, you can always find some outliers who said, oh, it should be included. But that was never the broad opinion of the people of God. So we don't think that just because an author is quoted at a particular place, that everything they wrote belongs or everything they wrote in that particular piece belongs in the scriptures. That's just a simple principle that can be applied to many different passages. Okay, next question comes from Tim. If Solomon was the wisest man on earth at one point, why did he end up failing God at the end of his days? I'm not sure that this is where there's a distinction with wisdom and discernment. Tim, uh, you're asking a very, if I could say, it's a wise question to ask. Okay, we know that Solomon is presented to us in the early chapters of First Kings to be a unbelievably wise man. He prayed and asked God for a gift of wisdom. God gave him that gift, and he had what we might call supernatural wisdom from God. And um, that wisdom is displayed in the early chapters of 1 Kings. But then there comes a point where Solomon begins to marry foreign women and enter into political alliances with them. And he begins to worship pagan gods because of the influence of these pagan wives that he took. We're told that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand, to put it this way, that's a thousand bed partners. Now, I think this is what it shows us. It shows us two things. First of all, that just because you start out wise, it doesn't mean you remain that way. You know, we we usually think of it being young men who fall because of uh, lusts and sexual immorality. And certainly there's more than enough young men who do. But don't forget in the Bible, for example, that it was young Joseph who resisted the temptation of Potiphar's wife, but it was old David who fell into sin with Bathsheba. It was old Solomon who fell into sin with his many pagan wives. 
And Solomon was a man who sadly, at least in this regard, became less wise in his old age. It should not be like that, but sometimes it is like that. And the other thing is, the lure to sexual immorality, the lust of the flesh, especially as they might be expressed in sexual immorality, because there's many ways that lust can be expressed. Sexual immorality has a way of making smart people stupid and wise people fools. That's the story of Solomon. If the wisest man who ever lived, or at least on the earth at his time, if the wisest man on the earth at that time fell through giving in to the lusts of the flesh, how much more should regular everyday people like you and myself be on guard? I think that's the great lesson to learn. Just because we have wisdom doesn't mean that we are um, predestined to apply it, to use it. Great question there, Tim. Next question comes from Polly of our YouTube audience. Polly asks, I know at least one of the apostles was married and they traveled three years with Jesus. Is it because they were close to home a lot of the times? How did that work for their marriages? Well, Polly, that's a good question. Um, I would say yes. You need to understand that Jesus did the majority of his ministry in the region of Galilee. And in the region of Galilee, uh, the disciples, most all of them, maybe one of them did not come, but for the most part, the disciples came from the region of Galilee. They weren't all that far away from home when they traveled with Jesus. That's one take on it. But there's another take on it that we understand that it may have just been understood that these were men who were going away uh, for education. What they received from Jesus uh, by following him around as his disciples was something like the way people received a rabbinical, or if we wanted to you know, put it in a different context today, what we might call today a seminary education. So I think we see that, that it's something like people going away on a business trip or several business trips or away to school or away for something else. No doubt it put a strain or a stress on their marriage relationship. I don't doubt that at all. Uh, but they weren't all that far from home for most of Jesus' ministry because the majority of Jesus' ministry was done in the region of Galilee, and these were all men from that region. And in addition to that, uh, it was just understood that this was like going away to get an education. So I think it was a sacrifice that they as families were willing to make. I hope that's helpful for you there, Pauline. Again, good question. Uh, next question comes from Wayne. Uh, what are the seven spirits of God? Wow. What are the seven spirits of God? Well, let me just say this, Wayne. You're referring to a passage in the book of Revelation, which refers to the seven spirits of God. And I'm just going to be very upfront with you, Wayne. There is no categorical answer to that in Scripture. In other words, there's no specific passage that says these are the seven spirits of God. Um, 
But there is a passage, I'm going to look this up if you all don't mind, uh, that speaks of the seven spirits of God, or, or at least seven characteristics of the spirit of God. Um, so let me see if I can find that here. I beg your all patience. Okay, I, I believe the best way to understand this is from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I was looking at my Bible. I got the wrong. I thought it was Isaiah chapter 61. But it's 11, 2, Isaiah chapter, that I believe describes seven aspects of the Holy Spirit. This is from my commentary on Revelation chapter 1. So he, here we have the spirit of the Lord, that's number one, the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel, of might, the spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. So I didn't think these are seven different spirits of God, but the spirit of the Lord has at least these seven characteristics, and he has them in fullness and perfection. So I really think that's the idea behind the phrasing of uh, the seven spirits of God. Uh, so th that's the best way I would describe it. Okay, a few more questions here now. Jeanette asks the question, did God create Adam and Israel? Did Noah's ark float adrift and land in what is now called Israel? Uh, Jeanette, I'll answer your question in two ways. No and yes. Okay, first of all, did God create Adam in Israel? Okay, the answer to that question is no, because if we're going to take the Bible seriously, and I would say as describing historical events, if you want to call it literal, go right ahead. If we're going to take the Bible seriously here, there's a radical difference in the topography and geography of the world before the flood and after the flood. So it doesn't exactly work to apply national or regional boundaries to things before the flood to be the same ones as after the flood. So we're not told where this is exactly. If we were to take the descriptions of the Tigris and Euphrates as they're described there in the book of Genesis, which I think were rivers after the flood, named after rivers before the flood and not necessarily exactly the same rivers. But in any case, uh, if we were to take those, we would say, no, uh, the Garden of Eden was not in the land of Israel. Now, um, what did I say? Yes and no? I mean, no and no. God did not create, the Garden of Eden was not in Israel. It was in the pre-flood world. And did Noah's ark float adrift and land in what is called? No, it tells us specifically it landed on Mount Arat. And Mount Arat is in the land of Armenia, Turkey. It's in that area of the world. By the way, I just want to remind everybody that there is remarkable evidence in the scriptures. Uh, in the scriptures, but then even more so, there's remarkable evidence in um, history of appearances of the Ark of the Co the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Noah, in the mountains of the world in that area. Um, I want to call your attention to my commentary on Genesis chapter seven, I believe. 
Anyway, if you look that up, my commentary uh, on Genesis chapters 6, 7, and 8, uh, I go through the remarkable historical sightings through history of unusual structures high up on Mount Arat. So, uh, th- again, that is not in the land of Israel. Thank you, Jeanette, for that question. Next question comes from our YouTube viewer, Terry, asks the question, do you think God has a sense of humor? Well, Terry, I would say absolutely. Um, he created us. <laughs> he bears with me. I, I think that sometimes God could not look at me and maybe sometimes you or some other ones and give a little chuckle give a little laugh. Yes, I believe that God has a sense of humor. Uh, I I want you to consider this, that, you know, we are made in the image of God, and I think that there is something that is, or at least potentially so, pure and good and helpful and right about a sense of humor. So that would be something that we received from God as part of his image. So I would say, yes, God does have a sense of humor, And aren't we happy about that? Because it means that he bears with us with great long suffering. So good question there. Now, our final question for the day, and folks, I'm sorry if we didn't get to your question. I want you to know that we copy and record these questions and we have them on hand and we hope to get to some of them later in our lead questions or maybe come back real soon in our question and answer next week and we'll get to it. But our last question for the day comes to us from Raquel, one of our YouTube viewers. And Raquel asks, what is your view on Ezekiel's war in Armageddon? My understanding is that they are two separate wars, one before the tribulation and the other after the millennium. Raquel, yes, I would agree with you that the battle with Gog and Magog as described in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 seems to me to be quite a distinctive, different thing than the battle of Armageddon. Whether or not it is the same as the thing mentioned at the end of the millennium, there's some discussion on that to be had, but I would say that definitely we're talking about different battles here. Um, There's many, many ways in the ways that they're described in the scriptures in which they are different. So, folks, thank you for joining us today. Very pleased that you could. God bless you. I do believe that we'll be back with you, of course, next week. And um, we uh, hope that you can join us then. So God bless you. Thank you for joining us. And I do so much appreciate your prayers for the ongoing work of Enduring Word, that our free Bible resources could continue to go out to as many people as possible. Thank you again. Thanks to Devin, our moderator, for all his help today. God bless you. Hope to see you again soon. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.